The story of Moses bringing fresh water from a rock in the desert is told twice in the Old Testament. God tells him to take some of the tribal leaders aside, possibly so that they can see that the miracle they are about to witness is genuine. God is about to lead them to a rock, he says, and Moses is to take the staff which he used to turn the Nile's waters into blood and whack the rock with it. Water will then burst out of it to quench the people's thirst, he promises. Sure enough, the water flows and the people are finally able to drink. This is another of the miraculous events in the desert that resonates through the entire rest of the Bible. If God can part the Red Sea and make water flow from dry rock, the suggestion is that he is both powerful and trustworthy and cares deeply for his people. God may be in charge of the miracle water, but the naming of the place where this happens is left to Moses, who calls it both Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarrelling. The Israelites may no longer be thirsty, but if these names are anything to go by, Moses is not at all pleased with the people who he has to somehow herd through the desert and who, even after everything that has happened to them, still fail to believe in God. They may have made it safely out of Africa. They may have food and water, but the desert is a hostile place and the land where the Israelites are heading already has a resident population. The distant descendants of Noah's son Ham have lived in Canaan for generations and they aren't going to give up their homeland without a battle. One tribe in particular recognises the threat and gears up to fight the escaped slaves. The battle for Canaan has begun. My name is Chas Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 20, The New Rules. My goodness, episode 20. This deserves champagne all round. I can't believe we've kept up the pace all this way. I am eternally grateful to everyone who has listened, offered suggestions and told others about this podcast. I'm also indebted to a whole heap of wise and learned folk who have either written things down or spoken at events which I've attended and who have unwittingly contributed to this podcast. Their names are all in the show notes. If you simply hit latest episode, you've joined at a great time. Around 2 million liberated slaves are camped in a desert en route to colonising a landmass which they believe was promised to their ancestors centuries earlier by God. Plot spoiler, the land is home to a large number of tribal kingdoms who have no plan to give up their homeland and who won't lie down without a fight. All quotes in this podcast are taken from Zondervan's new international version UK edition of the Bible. Now, let's see where episode 20 takes us. Crossing the desert proves to be a risky business. It's hard to know whether the Amalekites are genuinely worried about the Israelites taking their land or whether they are simply a bunch of opportunistic nomads who sense an easy win. Despite being the underdog in the fight that's about to take place with the Amalek warriors, Moses knows he needs to assemble an army. Amalek was a grandson of Esau, but relations between the descendants of Esau and those of his twin brother Jacob have clearly broken down. Moses delegates to a man named Joshua, whose task is to organise an army to take on the approaching Amalekites. 
Moses promises to oversee the battle from a nearby hill, holding what he refers to as the staff of God in his hand. The next day, Moses takes Aaron's miraculous staff and climbs to his vantage point with his brother and another man, Hur, who barely features in the rest of the Bible. Hur appears to be the father of a man called Caleb, who later excels as a spy, and who is the grandfather of Bezalel, the craftsman who fashions the fabulous portable temple known as the Tabernacle, as well as the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible is filled with bit-part players like Hur, who rarely get more than the briefest mention, but whose stories add richness and depth to the book. As for her himself, what is certain is that Moses sees him as a dependable ally and wants him close by at this critical moment in the Israelites' history. Meanwhile, the battle commences and when Moses lifts the staff above his head, the Israelites gain the upper hand. As soon as he lowers the staff, the battle turns in favour of the Amalekites. Like the conductor of a great orchestra, Moses stands with his staff aloft, directing the battle. Being human, there is only so long that he can hold his arm in the air, and so his two companions find a stone for him to sit on and stand either side of him, holding his arms up for him. The men remain in this position until sunset, at which point the battle is won by Israel. Interestingly, the account of the battle in the book of Exodus focuses on the action on the mountain, not the battlefield, and the suggestion is that the fight is won by God through the faith of Moses and his two wingmen, not by any military prowess or combat skills. The final full stop on the event is when God tells Moses to write on a scroll that he will utterly blot out the kingdom of Amalek, a promise that remains on Israel's to-do list for the next 500 years. Moses builds an altar in honour of the victory, which he gives the appropriately military name, The Lord is My Banner, adding that the Israelites will be forever at war with the Amalekites because they dared to raise a hand against God. News of Moses' success reaches Jethro, who arranges a meeting with his son-in-law. Exodus describes how Jethro takes in his daughter and her two sons after Moses sends her away from Egypt. This is a head-scratcher for Bible sticklers, as this is the first mention of Zipporah since she stepped in with a knife to save Moses' life by circumcising their son. At some point, the couple have had a second son, a boy called Eliezer, whose name means God is my helper on account of God sparing him from Pharaoh's fury. It seems that the family made it through the Red Sea before being packed off to Jethro for safekeeping. Jethro sends a message to Moses that he's heading out to meet them with Zipporah and the boys and arrives at the Israelite camp whose location Exodus describes as the Mountain of God. If this is the same mountain where Moses saw a burning bush while tending Jethro's sheep, they can't be far from the old priest's home. Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law and regales him with all the adventures that have happened since he travelled to Egypt. He places special emphasis on the role played by God, possibly hoping to persuade Jethro to switch faiths. The plan seems to work. Jethro is delighted at all that God has done for his daughter's husband and the two million or so people who are camping nearby. He openly praises God for rescuing everyone from Egypt and in Jethro's view, his punishment of those who treated Moses' people arrogantly sets him above all other gods. Unprompted, he kills an animal, burns it and offers it to God. 
Aaron and the tribal elders then join Jethro and Moses for a meal. The next day, when Jethro sees Moses spending his entire day judging every matter brought to him, however trivial, he is incredulous. How can Moses spend all his time surrounded by people, each with cases that need looking into? Moses sees nothing broken with the system. The people want to know God's opinion on their disputes. And Moses' job is to decide who is right and wrong based on what he knows of God's laws. Jethro is worried that Moses will exhaust himself. This is too much for one man to take on, he says, before offering some advice to his son-in-law. Moses' job is to represent the people to God and to bring their disputes to him, but he should teach them the law so that they know how to behave. Rather than do all the grunt work himself, he should elect trusted judges from among the people. Most cases will sort themselves out, Jethro says, and only the trickiest ones should be brought to the supreme leader. If God is in favour of the move, then organising a mob the size of the Israelites should be relatively straightforward. Moses will be under less stress as a result and will feel satisfied that they have received justice. Happy to take some wise advice, Moses picks men to lead thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. Years earlier, a fighting Israelite on an Egyptian construction site asked Moses, who made you judge over us? Little did he know that God really was going to make this man judge over the Israelites. Not one to gloat, Moses thanks his father-in-law, who rides away out of the Bible. Once the family get-together is over, the Israelites break camp and arrive at a mountain in the Sinai Desert. It's been three months since they left Egypt and the people camp at the foot of the mountain. Assuming that God is to be found at the top of the mountain, Moses starts to climb. As he does so, he hears what he believes is God's voice, calling to him with a message for the people below. They have all seen what he did in Egypt and how he carried them on eagles' wings to bring them here, he says. If they follow his rules and keep true to the contract which he is about to make with them, they, more than any other nation, will be like treasure to him. God announces that the entire world belongs to him, but these escapees from Egypt will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart just for him. Moses takes the message back to the elders, who agree that as ways forward, following God is definitely a positive one. He returns to the mountain where God promises to appear to him in a dense cloud, in earshot of the people who will trust Moses forever as a result of the experience. Moses passes on the good news to God that his people are keen to engage in a relationship with him and is told that the people have three days to purify themselves before he comes down onto the mountain in full view of everyone. The rules for the big day are to be strictly enforced. Everyone must wash thoroughly. The mountain is to be ring-fenced and no one is to approach it or touch it. It is so sacred that anyone who does place a hand on it is to be killed by arrows or rocks so that no one has to touch them and become contaminated. Only when they hear the sound of a ram's horn is it safe to come closer. Moses shares all this with the people, ordering them to abstain from sex for the next three days as a further act of purification. Three days later, thunder and lightning light up the sky above Mount Sinai and a trumpet blasts. 
The people shake in fear as Moses leads them to the foot of the mountain where smoke billows like a furnace. The mountain itself shakes and the whole scenario sounds like some kind of volcanic eruption. The trumpet sound increases in volume and according to Exodus, Moses speaks and God answers, summoning him back up the mountain. No sooner is he up than Moses is sent back down to warn the people not to try and join him up here to get a glimpse of God. Anyone who tries this will be obliterated. Even the priests who approach him will have to purify themselves before attempting such a stunt, God says. Who these priests are isn't clear, as so far the Israelites appear to be an entirely secular bunch with no internal organisation or spiritual leadership. Moses assures God that no one would try to break through his cordon, but God reiterates he should fetch Aaron, adding a further reminder that anyone else would be killed if they tried to climb up to see him. Back down Moses goes to collect his brother and impress on everyone else in the camp to remain exactly where they are. It's a lot of exercise for Moses. According to the Bible account, the Israelites' leader eventually climbs up and down the mountain eight times. Moses may be an Israelite by birth, but he has no idea of what this means in a practical sense. It's not like the Israelites themselves adhere to any kind of religious or legal code either. What the people need is a legislature. Once Moses is back up the mountain, God issues his ten rules for life, better known as the Ten Commandments. As might be expected from anything with the word commandment in the title, the Ten Commandments is a no-nonsense, business-like set of diktats. This is God spelling out exactly what is acceptable and what is taboo for the people he has created. The thinking is that with everyone respecting one another while honouring God, life on earth should click. Strictly prohibited are murder, robbery, adultery, coveting, saying that people committed crimes they didn't do, worshipping gods that aren't God, worshipping statues, dishonouring parents and disrespecting God. Keeping the Sabbath special is definitely in, the only thou shalt in a large box of thou shalt nots. The first three commandments centre on God himself, suggesting the importance which he puts on being worshipped and obeyed. This is why Rule 1 states that no other god should be placed ahead of him in order of divine hierarchy. Rule 2 forbids anyone to make an image of anything in the sky, on the earth, under it or beneath the sea, which seems like a complete embargo on art. This is clearly not what God means, as he later commissions Moses to decorate the tabernacle with snakes, lilies and pomegranates. The suggestion is that this isn't a blanket ban on painting or sculpture, but one which forbids making an image such as an idol which is then worshipped. Some versions of the Bible describe these images as graven, but all this means is that they have been carved or engraved. God explains that he is a jealous God and anyone who acts in a way that suggests they hate him can expect their descendants to be punished for at least four generations. On the flip side, those who love him and keep to his rules will receive his love up to a thousand generations. Third in the list of no-goes is misuse of God's name. Examples aren't given, but it's generally accepted that these include a long list of Oh My Gods, For God's Sakes, God Help Us's, Jesus Christ's, Christ on a Bikes and hundreds more. 
These off-the-cuff expletives and exclamations pepper everyday conversation for many people who might not even realise that they are breaking a commandment that is sacrosanct in three of the world's most dominant religions. Regardless of whether these people care, God makes his opinion clear. No one who abuses his name will be held guiltless. Keeping one day a week as a rest day is also one of God's imperatives. Not only is this a much-needed day off after six days of hard work, it's seen as a day dedicated to God. The ruling applies to the entire household. Not even servants or any non-Jewish guests are allowed to lift a finger if that finger is about to cook a meal, plough a field or gather firewood. The word holy means set apart, and this is a day to be set apart for God. The word holiday comes from holy day. The rest of the commandments are more about interpersonal relationships and maintaining law and order within a community. Theft and murder are as taboo in Moses' time as they are today and still remain punishable acts under most of the world's judicial systems. Others concern morality. The Israelites are ordered to respect their parents, to not bear false witness, nor to covet their neighbour's ox. Respecting the elders in a family means more than good table manners and not answering back to parents. It involves behaving in a way that doesn't bring shame on the family name. Not bearing false witness means more than not lying about someone in court. Some connect the commandment with gossip. Though seemingly innocuous, this pastime can be a pernicious one. It often involves passing on uncorroborated information about a person to others, which might be reputationally damaging. On a more serious scale, this can amount to slander or libel. Few neighbours these days have oxen to covet, but obsessing over things which are not available, such as another person's husband, wife or possessions, speaks as much to common sense as it does morality. Another of God's ten ground rules is one which today might only lead to relationship breakup and financial loss, but which has much more serious consequences in Old Testament times. Adultery is seen in the Bible as an act of violence that ruins women and leaves them unmarriable and destitute. It's so forbidden that anyone found guilty of this should be executed. Understandably, having 600,000 adults engaging in free love in the desert with no one taking responsibility for any children born out of these liaisons is not workable. As with many of the rules handed down to Moses, keeping order in the camp is paramount. While Moses is receiving the commandments, all the people down below can see is thunder, lightning and smoke and they are gripped with so much fear that they physically shake. Even when the ram's horn trumpet blasts and Moses returns to them, they remain at a distance. They beg Moses to speak to them rather than have God do the talking as they worry that the fear might actually kill them. Moses reassures them that they have nothing to be afraid of. The fear is a good thing, he says, as the whole point of the exercise is to make them afraid of doing anything that offends God. The Israelites remain unconvinced of their own safety and hang back as Moses returns into the dense cloud. The Ten Commandments form the basis of Israel's relationship with God and lay down what he expects from his people as they worship him, demonstrate their faith in him, and relate to one another. The fact that God later writes them in stone stresses the importance he puts on them. 
This is the Old Testament equivalent of bold italics underlined and is about as emphatic as the Bible gets. These 10 rules remain as the moral principles that still guide the Western and Muslim worlds and their effect on history and culture is impossible to measure. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com.